dislocating the Arab future from the grip of the political bankruptcy and moral morass in the Arab world might appear remote and relegated to the domain of quixotic dreams. But does it need to be that way? As communities are unsettled, resistances triggered, a chorus of voices fired up, waves of bodies set in motion for justice, and a range of emotions roused even when they no longer have an appetite. Can the continued onslaught on reality not also reinvigorate political thought? Hello everyone, and as my people, the Arabs, say, may you live long and prosper, I think. Anyway, this is the Fire These Times, and I'm your host, Joey. Each week I bring on a guest, or two, or three, or four, to talk about everything from solar punk to anti-authoritarian politics, passing by intersectional feminism, decolonialism, degrowth and post-growth, global solidarity, and of course the climate emergency. And if any of that sounded too nerdy, you've made it this far, so might as well give the rest of this episode a listen. Finally, this episode was first made available to Patreon supporters, who also get access to all episodes in exchange for helping turn this project into a full-time job. So, if you want to show my grandmother that this isn't quote just a hobby unquote please head out to patreon.com slash times and join the amazing community of folks who are making this project possible so anyway join a union so the conversation on this podcast is with Amr Ali he is the author of the words that I started this episode with they are part of this essay that he's written about three years ago now called On the Need to Shape the Arab Exile Body in Berlin. We talked about what does it look like to move from the centers to the peripheries in the context of the Arab Spring. You might think this is a conversation about Arabs and about Arabs only, but it really isn't. Uh, feel free to check out the description below to look at the different topics that we got into in this episode. And as always, I thank you for listening. Hello, I'm Amr Ali. I'm based between Egypt and uh, Germany, and I'm a, and a lecturer in sociology at the American University in Cairo, and I'm a postdoc fellow at the Free University in Berlin, and I research on matters re- related to exile, the Mediterranean world, the Arab world, and political philosophy. We'll be primarily talking about uh, an essay that you wrote in 2019, I think, and so the title of the essay is On the Need to Shape the Arab Body. Uh, the Arab exile body in Berlin. So l- yeah, let's just start from from the start, as I always do. So what what is the essay about? Like, why is there this need, and why Berlin? I guess you could say it, it came out of a crisis uh, that I was uh, experiencing uh, around me. Uh, because if you asked me in 2011 during that glorious year uh, that we had in the Arab world, uh, which is important, the, the the center or the periphery, and I would always say the center that it's important to be in Beirut, to be in Cairo, to be in Damascus, to enact change. Uh, then, of course, things changed over the years, uh, for, the, for the worse. And I started to reconsider, you know, how things can happen. And maybe that redemption can be in the periphery, that some sort of constructive political change can come from those who are abroad and how it has happened historically. So. The question is, why this need? Why should we bother? But I, I would, my answer would be that things don't necessarily happen organically. That uh, the idea of political, to be political, and politics requires concerted action, requires a will, requ- requires visions, and a political imagination that translates into some sort of concrete reality. And this requires... Uh, some sort of 
discussion and consensus and capacity building. This is not safe to do in the Arab world anymore. And we should be under no illusion that that will happen. But I think also is that we have entered a stage of nihilism in the region where many things just do not make sense anymore. Uh, remember, we're dealing with a region that murdered a journalist in Istanbul in a consulate. Uh, we're dealing with a region where people who call themselves leftists uh, yet support the Assad regime. You know, so you're talking about things that have become scrambled and do not make any sense. And therefore, there needs to be a reinvigoration of some sort of political imagination that can tie us together in a new chapter, even if it's far away, but with links back home to enact change, even if we don't see it in our lifetime. And so why did you, why Berlin? Why did you pick Berlin? When I, I, I got a fellowship in 2015 to Berlin, and it was only for a few months. And I was amazed at the activities that were happening. Remember, this was also during the, the height of the refugee wave uh, that was coming from Syria and, uh, and elsewhere, but mostly Syria. And also there was a lot of uh, activities happening that I had not seen in other cities. Now, for sure, London, Paris, New York has all these cultural production uh, and dynamics that happen. But there's a difference. These are well established and it's kind of business as usual in these cities. But where Berlin, it was new and original and fresh. Uh, and it was becoming some sort of gravity center and you felt it. And Berlin made a lot of sense. It was cheaper than the other capitals. Uh, it had institutional support. Uh, than um, wide-ranging institutional and grassroots support compared to other Western capitals, or even Istanbul, if we include um, Arab exile capitals. Uh, and also, there is it's structured historically and contemporary in a way to favor the liberal arts uh, and, and um, the humanities and social sciences for those who want to pursue that. Uh, whether in an academic sense or intellectual and creative sense. Yeah, you in the beginning of your essay, you quote uh, Siegfried Krakow. And so I'm just going to read the quote because I kind of like it about Berlin. Uh, These streets lose themselves in infinity. A countless human crowd moves in them, constantly new people with unknown aims that intersect like the linear maze of a pattern sheet. So there is very much this sense from reading this essay. And Berlin is a city that always fascinated me. I've only been there a couple of times, so I, I wouldn't say I know it that well. But it's definitely on my to-do list in the sense of like visiting more, getting to know it more, definitely reading about it more as well. But so this sense of Berlin sort of being um, a place where a lot of different worlds meet, a place where the present has this different dimension to it, we might say, than some of these other cities, obviously partly or largely due to its, its dark history, and where there is this, this sense that one can, one can, at least in theory, if not in practice, rebuild oneself as you said it's not that it's impossible to do so in london or in paris or in new york but speaking as someone who knows london and paris quite well there are limitations usually financial uh, but not just you also like for example when it comes to paris you mentioned this in your essay paris has this uh, francophonie aspect to it so like it's it 
a, a special, like not a special, but a different type of Arab in many ways that can go there. That's not necessarily accessible to all, 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 uh, all Arabs that Berlin doesn't have. You, you already spoke about it, but let's, let's get into it a bit more. What do you think differentiates Berlin from these three cities? And at the same time, you showed me earlier today uh, one of the reactions to, to your essay. You, it, it was published uh, well three years ago now, more or less. Talk to us a bit about these reactions. Since you've published it, uh, why do you think it's gotten uh, this reaction? I, I would say that uh, my essay already articulated something that was already there, that was already happening. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily uh, something that uh, one just comes on, on the scene and makes it up. It was already brewing. And uh, I was searching for language to, to try to describe it. So it, it involved a lot of readings. The problem with this uh, phenomenon that was happening in Berlin was that I couldn't find a precedent uh, of it. Of course, there have been exile precedents, but we are talking a very different type of Arab exile phenomenon that has not happened historically uh, with these dynamics, because you know the you know every immigration and and, and waves of exiles and uh, diasporas have happened on a country by country basis. Um, era by era basis, such as, you know, the Libyans fleeing 1970s Gaddafi's Libya, or Lebanese fleeing the 1980s civil war. Uh, but it wasn't like it doesn't necessarily happen simultaneously. Uh, and when it does say to the Gulf, it, it only it's for economic reasons, and you have to avoid politics to be able to legally stay. So Berlin gave this new sort of uh, platform and era where many can come and you know bring their creative uh, juices and, and 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 thoughts and knowledge production to the city. So the the reactions have have varied. What was surprising about the the first primary reaction, I'd say first major reaction, was that I didn't speak in Berlin after the essay was published. It was Madrid, and so when I came to Madrid, uh, when I went, it was in. Um, in, in March 2019, uh, and it was for a cultural salon to discuss the essay. What was interesting was I, I met all these, uh, not just Arab exiles, but also those who are connected to the Arab exiles, whether they be uh, leftists and socialists and um, journalists, intellectuals, uh, a few politicians. And so it was really fascinating to see this part of Spain that I really didn't know much about. Uh, and so it was a, a fascinating conversation about how they view Berlin, how they engage with it, how they understood the essay. Um, and, and, and I was um, impressed. I was really impressed because uh, what was interesting about the those in Madrid and Barcelona was is that they went to Berlin for specific events and they came back to Spain with this image of Berlin being like this huge dynamic happening and they forget the other side of Berlin where people have to pay their rent, they face racism, they, there's all these other things. But I think it was actually a good thing that they came with this picture that inspired them at least to do their own activities. Uh, and so that was uh, uh, one reaction. So it was actually two lectures that I gave in Madrid uh, based on that. Uh, so I started to um, engage with Spain and understand it differently uh, than the Spain that I, I, I thought I knew before, but the essay changed dynamics uh, in my relationship and the and the audiences in, in Spain. And the same applies to Amsterdam and Brussels. 
uh, Oslo, uh, and then miscellaneous other places. But interestingly enough, it's not, you don't get much traction from Paris, New York, or London. And I think that's quite telling. Uh, I, I didn't get much reactions from these cities. And it could just, I think that the demographics of Europe is showing that there are younger audiences, uh, mobile fluid dynamic uh, in these spaces in Berlin, in Madrid, Barcelona, Amsterdam, and, and Brussels, and Oslo. So the fact that they're not even traditional capitals uh, of exile, uh, no one thinks of them as such. And so, well, yes, I mean, I, I did get comments and all that from these cities, but nothing that I was, could consider uh, concerted uh, action where the essay shows up uh, in a workshop or, uh, or, or some sort of uh, mobilization, as has happened in other, other cities. So I think uh, that really speaks volumes and it confirms uh, things that I had at the back of my mind about the, the importance of these emergency cities with Berlin uh, being at the helm, I would say. There are some potential parallels with London, but not necessarily with the Arab community, but with Hong Kongers, just because of the... Mm. The specific visa arrangement, I guess I would call it, I don't know how to call it, uh, that happened uh, past few years in response to the, the ongoing, yeah, visa politics in, uh, in response to the ongoing crackdowns in, in Hong Kong. So I know that a lot of friends, because I've been involved with that scene a bit, mm. a lot of friends are now in London when before I was, I was talking to them uh, and they were in Hong Kong. And so, so that would be an interesting parallel there but definitely yeah i do i do see what you mean uh even though as i said my 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 knowledge of berlin is a little bit limited uh but i can say this like as someone who's in geneva um switzerland has this very weird uh as i think many people know very weird kind of politics at the same time it's supposedly neutral so in theory anyone can come in theory you know different kinds of exiles and they need to have been different kinds of exiles in Switzerland uh, from like far right to far left and everything in between. Um, but staying in Switzerland is the is always the question. Staying in Switzerland is always the thing that's usually difficult because it is it is quite impossible to do unless you have good connections and or basically money. And so even though Geneva has this sizable, I would say sizable Arab community, it's at least in my neighborhood or the area I live in, it's pretty common for me to find Arab shops and to hear Arabic on the streets alongside uh, Spanish, Portuguese and Italian. Those are the main languages that I hear and, and other languages as well. Um, yeah, but yeah, there is this sense that, OK, Geneva is very multicultural, multi-ethnic and a sizable percentage of the population is not from here. I think like 40 percent or something. But it's difficult to have a what you might say, like an equivalent to a Berliner or a new Berliner, a new Berliner. Um, uh, identity or even movement in in a city like Geneva and as far as I can tell I'm not going to speak for the entirety of Switzerland but as far as I can tell the only other real comparison would be with Zurich and even then as well I see I, I've heard about similar dynamics also very diverse very multi-ethnic mm -hmm. but not necessarily permanent in that sense and yet the 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 irony is that those are cities if we speak about Geneva for example or Paris or London those are cities that in many ways feel older than Berlin because Berlin was obviously very much destroyed in the Second World War. And so there is this very interesting thing happening where Berlin is at the same time new um, and at the same time is able to, to 
be, maybe because it's new or despite the fact that it's new, I'm not too sure, like feel free to, to kind of add on that. Mm-hmm. It's able to withhold more, um, the word that came to my mind is contradiction. I'm not exa- entirely sure why, but more difficulties, more, uh, it's able to absorb more differences, let's say, than I think a city like London or Paris are able to these days. I don't know what you think about that. You're correct, actually. Uh, like, like I was mentioning in the essay, the the problem, if you want to call it a problem, is that London and, and Paris are perfect, in, and I say that in quotes, in, in some respects, where Berlin is more of an incomplete city. And it's incomplete because uh, of the destruction it's gone through, its um, identity crisis. Uh, it was at the epicenter of the Cold War. Uh, it has gone through very dark times and very good times. Um, the You can't have all that happen and not turn out to be a city uh, that's, how could you say, like it's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's uh, not at ease with itself. The difference with uh, Germany and and, uh, and and Germany has a lot to account for. I don't want to make it sound like what I'm about to say is uh, uh, that it's uh, it's only a good thing, but Germany has had a conversation about its past, it, and it does it better than many other Western countries. It still has a long way to go, for, for sure. We, we can we can agree to that. Uh, and um, but it still has that you know issues where it's attempts to reconcile with its past, even if it produces uh, a neurosis and, you know, uh, you know mis- mislabeling and targeting of Palestinians and and so forth. But still, that conversation happens, where in in France and the UK, it's still a struggle to get them to recognize their colonial pasts uh, and, and, and the crimes they did, uh, where Germany seems, seems to be at a at a slight, uh, slight more mature level on in this in this aspect, uh, and also uh, it's it's a post-war phenomenon where West Germany has attempted to, you know, rebrand itself and export its soft power, where if it had to avoid military as a way of brandishing itself, it would have to focus on culture and push its. Uh, its face through the Goethe Institute around the world uh, and offer scholarships, which is nothing new, by the way, today. I mean, Germany gives out more scholarships, I think, relative to many other countries in Europe. But um, this has been happening for a while. Uh, and it was something that happened between the East Germany, the GDR, and West Germany as a way to uh, gain international legitimacy. This part has not changed, I would say, uh, much. It's something that it still does uh, a lot and specifically when it comes to to arabs you, you do you do talk quite a bit about that like how due to a a specific history due to a specific configuration of history i would say uh the germans and here i'm putting it in quotation broadly speaking are not viewed in the same way by many arabs as uh the brits or the french or the americans for that matter obviously that's not to say obviously that they haven't committed crimes uh which would be quite ironic to say of, of obviously they have but there was there is there is something very specific about yeah as you said like well it doesn't have this colonial past in the same way although it does but not towards the arabs what do you think that sort of says like how because i i read this and i didn't come i did kind of 
I got the impression, at least in the back of my mind, that yes, this is true, but is this a good thing? Not that you were saying that this is a good thing, no, no. but what what is it about that configuration? For those who don't know, can you sort of explain it? Uh, basically, the case of the Arab world's relationship with Germany, and I'm being reductionist here just to make a point, but uh, the, the idea is that it's often the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, and this is how they were viewed through the prism uh, of uh, the um, of of the UK, Great Britain, and 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 France's uh, colonialism, and also Germany was a very young country. Remember that they just they just showed up on the scene in the 1870s, uh, and and uh, they started building up relations with the rest of uh, the world. Uh, so, if you are someone like the Kaiser Wilhelm II visit, doing a tour of the Middle East in 1899. Uh, you don't have colonial baggage. It's difficult to hate someone like that, especially when he's juxtapositioning himself as the other, the different to Great Britain and, and France, and also spending on culture and, and, and museums and heritage preservation. And, and, and in one case, praising Saladin, you know, um, praising Saladin. And, you know, he was actually responsible uh, for making, Kaiser was responsible for making him a political symbol where before that he was not seen as a political symbol within the Arab world, but the speech was very powerful. Uh, and it even made the Ottoman authorities take note uh, of uh, Saladin's appeal. Um, so it's, and then during World War One, you had, you know, the the Ottomans sided with, 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 with Germany. So it gave it a, a sort of a, a holy flavor that Germany is not as cannot still cannot be as bad as as, as France and the UK, and Germany's crimes uh, in the at the turn of the 20th century were taking place in Namibia, and so southern southwest Africa, so away from the Arab world. Uh, the other matter is that when we get to World War II uh, or we get to the 1930s, uh, the Nazi regime starts manipulating uh, the, the the divisions in the Arab world and trying to. You know, even to the point of censoring parts of uh, or downplaying parts of Mein Kampf uh, for Arab audiences, that was also anti-Arab uh, in any case. The uh, but it, and so but these were all not ideological reasons; they were geostrategic reasons that were taking place. And when Rommel comes in comes to North Africa uh, with his Africa Corps, he was not he was more pragmatic than ideological. So we don't see the same sort of brutality in North Africa as we do in Europe. Uh, so all these matters, and then uh, the final straw was uh, the, the creation and the recognition of Israel, which Germany does, of course, and, and, and financially support. But also there was this reluctant view that Germany was doing this out of guilt, uh, but they were not, you don't see that same amount of anger that you might notice against Great Britain and the US and France in other situations yeah it's something i have been trying to think about as well but i think this this honestly explains it um i've been also I, I kind of along those same lines um another odd or not another relationship that we might say that today this is a present thing uh, that germany has with the arab world is that we saw recently with all the critiques and criticism that we can 
muster about the Koblenz trial, and I'm not a lawyer, but I am, I am aware that there are some disagreements, but we, we can put that aside for now. I'll, I'll try and do an episode on it specifically, eventually, but at least symbolically. So for those who don't know, I'll just briefly describe it as it's been called the world's first criminal trial against members of the Assad regime for crimes against humanity, and it's taking place in Germany, as I said. I will link to the Spiegel article uh, by Hanel Hitami and Christoph Reuter in the description. And I would also recommend there's a very good podcast called Branch 251, which is named after a notorious um, branch of the Syrian appara- uh, security apparatus. Uh, so people, it's in English, so people who are listening to this can, can check that out if they want. It kind of goes into it in detail. So, but symbolically, at the very least, now there is, uh, on paper, like now it's a, it's a legal fact that some version of accountability could be possible in Germany when it comes to the Arab world in ways that, as of now, is virtually impossible in the Arab world. Uh, Not just in Syria, obviously in Syria it's completely impossible, but in general throughout the Arab world it's it's unheard of, at least it's very uncommon. What what were sort of your reflections to not I maybe specifically the trial, but this this notion that I'm just curious because I while reading you while rereading your essay some weeks ago in the Koblenz trial in the news again, I did get the sense that there was some kind of link between what you were saying about Berlin, and what many uh, Syrian exilees, for example, were were celebrating you know celebrating this about the Koblenz trial and so on. So I was curious about your thoughts on that. I mean, I have many, many thoughts about that. Uh, I think uh, the, I would say the, the Syrian activist Wafa Mustafa, who is uh, a friend and a very, very powerful voice uh, within the exotic community in Berlin, put it beautifully when she said about the first trial, when she said that uh, he is getting justice, which we sought for in Syria, and he's getting it now, the justice that he deprived others of. In, in, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, there's justice that he was depriving citizens in Syria of. He's actually receiving it in his favor, uh, because if it was the other way around, where he was on the receiving end in Syria, he would not be getting any justice. It would be the end of him. And so uh, I think this really captures something really fundamental, because. One of the questions that I really ponder upon is the amount of refugees, amount of Syrians who have left Syria, and all this for what? I mean, all this for Assad and his family to hold on to power. I mean, is that really worth it? We are talking about another type of evil here. We're talking about some prolonged evil that goes beyond banality and beyond the idea of radical evil. This obsession with power, this obsession with burning the whole country down, or not minding that the whole country burns down, just so you can keep the status quo going. So the trial, really symbolic in a way, is that it shows that the immunity that the despots and their supporters and their henchmen in their world can get away with it's no longer that easy anymore. I'm not saying they're going to, they're all going to be arrested tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen. But the precedent it sets is very, very powerful and startling, especially when now when they consider having to travel uh, for work-related reasons or non-work-related reasons. Yeah, and 
also on the especially as i said there's a legal aspect to this that can be debated elsewhere but symbolically it it is also literally the first time in 11 years since the arab spring started and in syria and since march 2011 that we have seen any kind of uh i forgot who said this um Wolf is also a good friend i had her on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago but i don't think she's the one who said this someone else said this like it was almost like the fact that he was sitting there at court with other syrians uh exiles and refugees symbolically around him especially outside of the court it's almost like it 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 took him down to their level essentially like now they're they were equals that they he was facing the same kind of justice uh the same kind of accountability that uh in syria is 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 so impossible it's almost cruel to talk about it like it, it's so any kind of accountability is dangerous in syria for the Assad regime the Assad regime sort of understood this a long time ago clearly and so yeah this is this is why i guess i would emphasize on that and the fact that it is happening in germany i suppose would and a few years after the the big wave as you mentioned in 2015 would i would imagine kind of reinforce this notion that there's something different about germany that we've seen with the uk and france is simply not the same uh, uh it is how i would picture it anyway i don't know if you would disagree with that no no i, I do agree with you it's uh i don't think we would see this happen with the uk and france and and i i don't know why i can't say specifically because of uh, arms deals or because germany does the same thing etc it could also just be that, you know, the Germany does see itself as the head of the EU, even if it doesn't necessarily hold have to hold a position as the president of the EU, but it sees itself as having that sort of that's that responsibility. Um, but I, I really cannot say, uh, you know, when are we going to see? I mean, are, are these? Uh, anomalies that have just happened and are we going to see a, a pattern i mean i hope we see a pattern where war criminals are brought to justice wherever that may be uh, and uh and then i don't and i don't think um, it would be happening in france and the united kingdom because we haven't really seen that much happen in, in that area besides for example pinochet being arrested in, in the late 90s in, in the uk but I mean, I could be, yeah, I could be enlightened more on the matter if there's other arrests that have happened in these areas. No, no, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. Uh, well, as it happens, we're recording this on January 26th. So this is one day after January 25, which in Egyptian history is obviously very significant uh, since 2011, the start of the revolution there. I was, I remember this very well. I was in Abu Dhabi for some random reason, and there were Egyptians on the streets with flags and everything. And I think this was the most political moment I've seen uh, in Abu Dhabi ever since. <laughs> Given that it, it's uh, this episode will be out uh, a few weeks later, but we are recording this around the same time as to, uh, January 25th. Uh, the crackdowns and repressions that, that followed uh, throughout the Arab world uh, led many of us to find refuge elsewhere. I myself am in many ways luckier than other uh, nationalities because I'm from, I'm from Lebanon and the crackdowns haven't intensified in the same way. I talk about the specificity of the threats that I face in another episode uh, with Denamas, which is already out and obviously people can listen to that one. Um, 
but you have this description of Berlin, which if it's okay, I'm going to, to, to quote um, back at you. So you describe it as, Berlin is where the newly arrived Arabs suddenly, but not always, recognizes that the frightful habit of glancing over the shoulder, painfully inherited from back home, gradually recedes. All the while, a new dawn slowly sets in among the meetings of peers in this new city. As such, Berlin is not just a city, it is a political laboratory that enforces a new type of beginning one that turns heads in the direction of matters greater than the individual. And it generates a realization that the gray blur that nauseatingly blankets the future can actually be broken up." End quote. If I were to compare this description to where I currently live, for example, Geneva, there, there's one thing in common and one thing that's, that's definitely a difference. A difference. Uh, so the, the thing in common is that I've also felt in the past couple of years, this habit of being uh, you describe it as a frightful habit of glancing over the shoulder. For me, the, the way I would picture it is uh, being hyper alert all the time. Like I'm, I was, I still am, it's not completely gone, but I used to be significantly on hyper alert mode at all times. I would be um, very up to date with what's back happening back in Lebanon, as well as to a lesser extent elsewhere in the region. But at the same time, I would also be very aware of what's happening in the UK, in France, in Germany, like as much as, po as is humanly possible, obviously. With this um, instinctual feeling, you might say, or knowledge, or yeah, that I needed to know as much as possible because that was the best, the best protection. This, is, this was a way of, of protecting myself. I had to be hyper aware and hyper knowledgeable, which, you know, uh, has its pros and cons. But so this is something that I, I have been seeing in the past couple of years in Geneva, that despite the pandemic, as it happens, we moved specifically to this address the, the very week, actually the day of the explosion in Beirut. Mm. So the in 2020, August 2020. So very much like uh, Geneva has been this city that's often described as boring by a lot of people. But I, I realized that it's what I needed. I needed a city that was boring where quote unquote nothing was happening. I needed to know that I could walk anywhere. I could leave my phone at home and it didn't really matter. There was no security issues in that sense. And just be there in that sense. So this is something that I would see in comparison. Uh, like, like in compare it to what you said about Berlin. The difference though is the second bit, which is, um, where is it? Uh, so all the while a new dawn slowly sets in among the meeting of peers in this new city. This is something that in Geneva is not as common. I have met people, uh, you know, who are Arabs and even non-Arabs who are exilee or refugees or migrants and so on. But because there is this uh, transience that I mentioned before, like, you know, in advance that everyone that you're meeting, for the most part, most people that you're meeting uh, aren't here for, for long, any kind of long term period. Either they're here for a job or they got some kind of scholarship temporarily, you know, that, that sort of thing. But they basically, that's not permanent. They're going to leave very soon. I've also seen the same thing in London because I lived in London for two years and then Edinburgh for two years. It's all, it was also the same thing. I could meet a lot of people. I saw a lot of diversity, especially London more than Edinburgh as well, uh, of course, um, but still. And there were these long established communities. So I could see that there was a potential of meeting, as you say, peers, uh, meeting of peers in this, in this city which for me was new at the time. But for uh, political reasons, visa-related reasons and so on, I knew that those, um, those uh, second-generation, third-generation Arab, uh, British Arabs, etc., and so on, were there from a previous wave. Like, this wasn't the same wave as, as mine. I didn't even know it was a wave back then, but what ended up becoming a wave. Mm -hmm. 
um, because of uh, at the time it was easier for the it was easier to have an academic visa for example and to stay in the UK long term that's why there are so many um, academics of different backgrounds who are in their 50s and 60s 40s 50s 60s and above in the UK compared to uh, 30s and 20s which is becoming more and more difficult and obviously younger uh, even more so so it's, it's more just of a comment rather than a specific question because my, my next um, or more of an open question kind of a discussion because you, there's also this very good quote that I know you've shared on Twitter a number of times and I know this of, of Nagi Mahfouz who said like home is not where you were born home is where all your attempts to escape cease right and so I can see a bit of this in Geneva but there's something missing that from what I can read in, in your description of Berlin is to be found in Berlin. Can you talk a bit about this notion of home being this place where all attempts to escape cease and how, whether uh, this is what you found in Berlin? Okay, I will say that, first of all, Nakim Mahfouz didn't actually make the quote, it's just attributed to him. And I, I've actually oh, okay. <laughs> But uh, it is a beautiful quote nonetheless. I definitely have not found it in Berlin. I'll say that, but I don't know where I found it. It's not in Alexandria, Egypt, or part of it is here. It's not in Perth, Western Australia, where I grew up. And Berlin does satisfy some homely criteria, maybe in, in an intellectual sense, uh, but not fully. And I think it's really the, the question of coming to terms what it means to live in the, in the modern world under the new liberal storm where community is becoming fragmented and how do we piece this uh, matter back together? Um, when I say community, I, I say it with a capital C, I cannot emphasize the need for this matter. And yes, Berlin itself has a transit community. M many people also recognize that, that it does feel transient, even if you're on a five-year scholarship or if you're there's still something transient about it. The, the idea of community is something that is so primary that I don't even believe we, we should even be using uh, the internet to f facilitate this. I mean, sure, to support it, that's a different matter. But I, I, my thinking has gone back to the bricks and mortar way of building spaces. Because in 2011, Remember those days of the Facebook revolution and the Twitter and uh, how these social media tools were were celebrated? Sure, yes, the Western media exaggerated a bit, but there was an actual perception in the Arab world that these tools are important and they helped overthrow regimes and, and all that. And this was a popular view. It wasn't an imposed view. But also uh, what happens is that when you become overly reliant on this, uh, even before the pandemic, the pandemic just worsened it. But the you do start to fragment from each other, and I think there needs to be a re-examination of social spaces, whether that be the cafes or the coffee houses, or the mosques or the churches, the the campuses, whatever they may be, and and really find its potential to make the effort to go to such a place to meet up and form a community. It doesn't automatically happen like that, but the idea is that there are many uh, 
you can say lonely hearts in every household and and people are looking for some sort of uh, solidarity and love and I mean this the, I, I say these terms in the wider sense of the, of, of the word and I don't believe coping mechanisms can only I mean they, sure you can find them amongst as an individual but only to a point and then you need to branch out and find the we uh, and it doesn't have to be necessarily a political project but it needs some sort of engagement some sort of participation where you where you know your worth by by measuring it against the audience that you speak to and we have many many such exiles like that across europe uh, and 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 sure you can feel like mahmoud darwish the palestinian poet said you can feel like you can be in exile in your bedroom in your own homeland that's very common and the bigger question is how do we bring our ideas as intellectuals as academics as writers in an interventionist sense to break the isolation and the alienation and the rootlessness that has taken over we live a very different life to what our grandparents lived certainly our, our parents but definitely our, our our grandparents this whole the way marriage used to work the way uh, child rearing staying in the same you know town uh, you know all that has been fragmented uh, no one has a job for life anymore no one has a this idea of uh, a, a predictable workflow uh, and and also in terms of um, in terms of political thinking it's changed a lot in the sense of there is no more long-term visions if we look at the the, the Nahda the Renaissance movement in the Arab world in the late 19th century uh, they could write 50 years into the future they were very prophetic in that sense doesn't mean they got it right but they could write their novels and their prose uh, and their programs in a way that looked 50 years ahead today we are lucky if we can do that five years ahead we are we'll be very very lucky if we could just to reach five years it's difficult to do five years pandemic notwithstanding yeah uh, and part of my what well, a lot of things that i do get to in this podcast is this need for a futurism this need for actually by the time this episode comes out there there's going to be an episode with nat muller uh, which is which would be out um who's this curator who who curates uh palestinian art and other kinds of art and what her thesis we talked about her thesis because it was very much on um retrofuturism as she calls it like this tendency in many uh, arab work art works of art specifically to try and re-examine the past in, in the hope of having a different kind of future so there is this kinds of things happening but very much so and i, I see this in Mm -hmm. in um, works such as like Palestine plus 100 which is set 100 years after the Nakba after 48 or um, uh, Iraq plus 100 which is set 100 years after 2003 and so on and so forth mm -hmm. even in those books with all of the the which are really worth reading and they're very important I, I did get the sense that this is a very difficult thing to do uh, and so mm -hmm. the best stories have been uh, very fictional, like they were set hundred years later, but they were just fictional stories rather than an attempt to 
to picture what that year might look like or you know what that decade might look like but you mentioned this uh the the nagi mahfuz not nagi mahfuz quote <laughs> the 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 notion of this uh, home is where all your attempts to escape cease it reminds me like in your essay there is a uh, syrian director nidal hassan who was told by another um, another Syrian artist in I think it was in Berlin that, that what this thing happened, like what can artists do in exile? Like basically the question is like well, we're in exile. What can we do from here? Obviously, it's like you said before this notion that one has to be in the centers in order to uh, to affect a real change. And Hassan had this. I'm I'm quoting what you said. Like Hassan is uh, paraphrasing, had this very good response, which is that Syrians were in exile even before leaving Syria, that Syrians were in exile in Syria. It, not that dissimilar from what Mahmoud Dawish said about Palestinians in, in, in what's today Israel-Palestine being in exile in one's own homeland. Uh, this is something I've definitely concluded as well. Uh, this profound sense of alienation, uh, it, it used to be, because so in summer 2015, I left Lebanon for the first time for at least for any kind of long period of time. To, to do my master's in, in London. And it used to be that whatever I would feel homesick, or whatever I would feel uh, this kind of ache, you might say, uh, well, it would be resolved by simply going home. And of course, that's the privilege of me being able to do so. So I would simply go back every, like I would go back, I think four or five times a year at, at, at one point. So every like three months or so. So there wasn't any very long period of time. In fact, now as we're talking, this is the longest I've ever been outside of Lebanon. It's gonna be two years. And, but that kind of, what I was saying is that this, waves you might say this backs and forth from the uk to to lebanon the uk to lebanon lebanon to uk back back and forth and so on and then coming here uh early 2020 that process which is a five-year process more or less between 2015 and 2020 whenever i would go back there would be something i don't know how to describe it like an extra heaviness there's something that I would get used, and I describe it, I have a very, very visual mind. So I would describe it as, I was speaking to, to Hamid Sidno, I think a year, he's the lead singer of Mashka Layla, for those who don't know, a Lebanese band. I was saying how how almost obsessed I was when I was in London about benches, just like public benches. And I got really, I felt really in love with the, there's a thing in the UK, which I actually quite like, like of like cemeteries being also parks at the same time. So that was one in between dorms in, in London, the Soas dorms, which are next to King's Cross, I would walk to campus, which was like a 20, 25 minutes walk. And I would go through this, um, the cemetery, which anyone listening who've been there know which one I'm talking about, there's only one. And I would feel very at peace over there. Uh, I would feel very much like, this is something that in Lebanon, we don't have really, oh, we have a few, but they're not very good and they're not very accessible uh, parks. Uh, the notion of a bench in a, in a city like Beirut, like we would joke about them, like we would see a bench and actually joke about it because there would be like five of them and they would be sponsored by one of the banks, for example, because it's the only way that a bench can get any funding. And that's what AUB, the American University of Beirut, was for me. AUB, I did three years there, my undergrad 2010 to 2013. That was my, that was my public space, even though obviously it wasn't public. The, just the benches, just the idea of sitting, that you're allowed to sit, which as a student you're allowed to do, and that's it. That no further expectation. You just you can be with yourself. You can read a book. You can do nothing. You can sleep on it. Not nothing. Nothing matters. Like as in, there's no obligation to uh, having to deal with traffic or having to pay because the only way you can do so in Beirut is be in a cafe. You know there isn't any kind of 
obligation to do so. And so it would be these little things that, well, they seem like little, but they're actually pretty fundamental that actually people who live in Geneva, who grew up here, very much take for granted. They're, you know, a good bus system, a good tram system, a good train system, all of those things which in Lebanon we don't really have at least not very good, and we don't have trains or trams. So all of this to say that you have this other, um, you quote this other person, uh, Dina Wahba, if I got the name right, describing a sort of survivor's guilt, right? And even I would say like it, it intersects with this imposter syndrome as well at times. And I've had uh, Asa Khattab, who again, the episode will be out by the time this is out. So he's the Syrian uh, journalist who's been in Paris for a couple, actually we left Beirut the same month, so a couple of years. Before that, he was in Beirut, and obviously before that, he was in Syria. And he himself describes having this survivor's guilt, having this imposter syndrome. Like, am I still, are my views still representative? Or can I still speak for Lebanon? You know, I'm, I'm putting these in quotation. Can I still even write about Lebanon, for example? Those are questions that I obviously still go through and I still wrestle and struggle with. So I'm very curious if you can talk a bit either of your own personal experience or, yeah, people that you've talked to maybe in Berlin or elsewhere who have had to kind of deal with, with these with these questions. Mm. Uh, you really raised up a lot of fascinating points, I have to say, Joy. And it's actually interesting that you bring up the bench because I literally have the same problem with this year, the idea of benches. Uh, and to give you an example, actually, it takes place in Alexandria. Uh, at the mall, where there's a, there was an old woman at the help at the information desk of the mall. So this mall, by the way, it's not it's it's like a long stretch where there are stores um, alongside, and you know you can't. So it's not like a round. So it's like a long, long stretch. And I, I overheard the conversation where the the woman was asking, "Where did the benches go within the mall? She wants to sit down. She wants to take a rest." And I asked, uh, I, I intervened and I asked the, the worker, I asked, where are they actually? <laughs> she needs to sit down. He goes, uh, well, they've been removed. And but why? And then he says to her, well, you can sit in a cafe. And she goes, but I don't want to sit in a cafe. And, and, and it really made sense. Then he said to her, well, if you, if you want to sit for free, then there's a food court. But the food court is at the end of the, of the, of, of the mall. She wants to take respite. And then he uses the example of, you know, uh, teenagers who uh, who abuse it and, and sit, etc. But I'm like, that's why you have security and you can tell them to go like you always do. I don't understand why are there no benches. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, he couldn't give me an answer, but I I actually met the 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 head of the mall um, at a at a party, and uh, there were uh, and and he told me and he said to me the the sheikh of what you know some gulf country uh doesn't uh well, it was his idea or something and i'm like i'm not surprised this came from this certain <laughs> gulf country and but for me it was it was telling because often the the bigger changes start with the smaller changes and if you remove a park bench if you remove a a, a, a bench in a in a mall which is not really a public space, but it is in a way a public space in the in a modern sense. Uh, then what next? Because the what we are suffering in the Arab world is a form of mutant capitalism that does not understand any sort of humane choreography. Uh, it's you know building and expansion for the sake of expansion, and there is no conclusion to this mutant capitalism. When there is no conclusion, there is no rahmah, there is no mercy. 
that's what frightens me. And when you remove benches, it really says a lot about your worldview as a person on this planet. Regarding your next point about... Uh, be, before you get into that, I was, there's the, the example I can think of is in Beirut. The, well, two examples. One is Martyr's Square, which is supposed to be the, the main square in Beirut, is quite literally a parking spot. Um, mm. And it used to be, um, up until some years ago, uh, a parking spot for, the, for downtown. Uh, as we would call it, and it's actually pretty common to hear it to hear it mentioned in English, like downtown, rather than as it would be called al balad, uh, or referring to it as solidaire, which is the the private company which basically owns a lot of it. The, we would literally say like we're going to the cinema to solidaire, like we would call the the place where we're going, the physical location of where we're going, either downtown or solidaire. I would still hear, especially with the previous generation al balad, but then there was this very I reflected on this a few years ago, like this very interesting, if not distressing, disconnect between what they were talking about, because a lot of it was from memory, like something that they remember, especially before the, the 70s and the 80s, before the Civil War, and what we know of. Like, I, I never knew a... I was born in 1991, like the year when the war kind of ended or was finishing, and I never knew a Beirut uh, that did not have this kind of private like intense privatization right like this this kind of space that's not really a space where the only real space we would hang out are the malls essentially and because they're malls you wouldn't really be able to really sit down for any long period of time but anyway yeah please continue no no you're right uh, i think the dirtiest words in the arabic language is the tower uh, development mm. i used to think it was a beautiful word once upon a time and then i realized nothing generally comes good from this words uh, that masquerades as progress, as better, as uh, good. But we really see anything but any of that. In fact, it, it's quite telling when we lose more heritage buildings to developers than we do to war. That's <laughs> and especially Lebanon. <laughs> like it really is quite significant um, when we consider that. Regarding uh, survivors' guilt, it, it really varies from person to person. Uh, some people have a better handle of it. Some people cannot. Uh, some people, uh, you know, feel no um, feel no guilt. It, it really varies. It's it's difficult to say. Uh, at least what I see in the research in Berlin is that it's not necessarily a, a collective uh, sort of force of of survivors' guilt because. Part of the reason why I say that is that uh, many people are immersed in the current present. Uh, you know, this, this, and the problems that comes with being in German society and Berlin cosmopolitanism and fending off racism. Uh, and so, one of the, the, you know, one of my my research assistant Salma, when she was looking into this in in Berlin, she noted also the. The, the fact that there was an exhaustion among Syrians with the, the, the and the fetish, the fetishness of the victim narrative, which they're trying to escape. But also the German system is structured in a way where you only get funding if you play the role of the victim. Uh, and so it robs the Arab exile, and particularly the Syrians, because they're center stage, of their agency. 
and, and, and what they're able to uh, produce. The other, the other challenges that they face in Berlin is the increased Arab embassy activity and intelligence gathering, uh, which you can easily see at lectures, uh, where they can become quite disruptive uh, if there's a, a rowdy diplomat that's, that's there. And also, they're struggling with uh, integration. They're, it's not a case where they're trying to integrate, but they look at the previous Arab diasporas in Germany, where they have tried to integrate, but they're not well accepted. So they're, they're caught in this no man's land uh, in between two cultures. And so many in Berlin just give up on the idea of integrating, saying that we're not going to be accepted. The racism is too much anyway. So let's just live in our bubbles which ironically also gives them a sort of strength where it allows them to focus on their projects and their, rather than having to always impress you know, the, the wider society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so kind of a deeper dive on, on the, some of the challenges that you mentioned. I had um, Musa Kwonga on, um, that's episode 64 for those listening. Well, I had him on a number of times, but the last time we spoke about this book that he wrote uh, on 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 well largely on Berlin. It's called In the End. It was all about love, mm -hmm. um, and he's he's English uh, and he's he's a black Englishman. And the only relevance the, the reason I'm bringing that up is that obviously he brought, he brought up the racism that he feels in Berlin and that there mm -hmm. are something that I sort of knew but I didn't really know in detail that there are literally certain parts of the city that he can, he simply cannot go, especially after dark. So I was wondering if you can just talk a bit more about some of the difficulties that you think, uh, let's say, especially the new wave of, of exile, refugees, migrants and so on since 2015 or thereabout. What are certain things that they're facing and are there any indications that it's getting better or worse or like the same, you know? Sure. Uh, is the situation getting better or worse? I think the pandemic has put a sort of a freeze, uh, a sort of hold on being able to effectively measure <laughs> life in Berlin. It feels like a very unusually long transit, whatever is happening uh, in, in, this, in this pandemic era. But I can say generally that... Some of them are, are, are facing the challenges that I mentioned, where you know the I won't, I won't say some of them, but the idea of uh, trying to be accepted beyond the refugee um, status. This is just what they have become iconic for, uh, and so and and they have to structure their funding and their approach through this victim narrative that German institutions uh, favor. So it really limits the idea of creativity. But then you have a generational divide where the older generation will follow the German law to the letter on this matter, where the young, uh, the young exiles will say, we will write the application to favor, you know, a funding and we'll do whatever we want after that. So there's a different mindset in, in, this, in this regard. The other matter is that in the post 2011 Arab Berlin, the, 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 the exiles have described the pre 2011 Arab diaspora as apolitical. Uh, and so this is quite significant because it also means that there's a divide between those who came after 2011 and before 2011. And also there's a resentment from the diaspora, from the pre-2011 Arab diaspora towards the newcomers uh, uh, because they did not have to experience the re relative difficulty of growing up as a person of color 
in the German system. This uh, is a very widespread resentment. Uh, the other factor is that the young generation who came before 2011 speak better German than better than Arabic. So that's another sort of divide or, or barrier that, that creeps up. The other factor also is that the post-2011 exiles rarely considered Berlin as a destination before 2011. It just never showed up on the radar. Um, you know, of a place that you will go to. It was always either London, New York, or the US in general. Uh, but one of the strategic moves on behalf of the German system that they did well was to allow English as a way of mobility within Berlin. You couldn't do this in Paris. I, I can't imagine the, the French authorities allowing English as a, you know, as a as a way to. You, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but as a, as a way to uh, move and as a way of social mobility relative to Berlin. I mean. Yeah, no, there's been some some changes on that in like past few years from what I know. But yeah, generally speaking, it's it's just it's not realistic if you do not know French that to think mm-hmm. that you would be able to stay in Paris long enough. I think that I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Um, and, and I would also just add one more point is that. Uh, there's something really fundamental happening as well in the context of Berlin, but I would say in Europe. Many are meeting other Arabs for the first time in Europe. It's not happening in the Arab world. So for the first time I met other Arab Spring uh, thinkers and activists, it took place in Copenhagen in September 2011 for me. This was phenomenal. It didn't happen in Cairo or it didn't happen in Alexandria or, or, or Tunis. It's happening in European cities. Uh, Berlin just being more concentrated and well uh, exposed. So I think that's a lot. Hmm? Yeah, no, this is the same that happened to me in 2015 in London. I I did, I had met some uh, scenes in Palestinians, for example, at the UB, but not that many. It wasn't on on that scale. It's and certainly not like um, Egyptians, Libyans, Yemenis, uh, you know, other nationalities. Um, It's in it's in London. And and crucially, because of Lebanon-specific politics, the Syrians and Palestinians that I met in London were my legal equal. Because in Lebanon, obviously, you have all of those hierarchies of citizenship and non-citizen and refugees and migrants and whatnot. Exactly, yeah. Kafala. Uh, so, exactly, exactly. So there was this very, very distinct... There was a difference. There was really a difference that even in Lebanon, despite my best intentions, there would be this power dynamic that definitely limits, especially from the perspective of an activist, with some exceptions, but generally speaking, this would be the the case. And sort of speaking of this um, this potential relationship, we might say between Berlin and some of those uh, cities, some of those capitals, especially. Well, you wrote this in twenty nineteen, so you were talking that this you were mentioning how this Arab Berlin, as you call it, would need to build a reciprocal relationship with Arab cities beyond the institutional level. So you mentioned how there is this institutional level, which which we know of. Uh, currently, and you mentioned the two candidates most respect, receptive to new ideas are Tunis and, and Beirut. Now, obviously, since then, Beirut's been uh, facing a lot of difficulties, so maybe one day it could be again. But what did you mean by at least uh, theoretically like the need to have a, I guess I could describe it as more of an organic connection between a city like Berlin and a city like Tunis, for example, a city like Beirut or you know other, other examples as well? I could definitely see uh, schools of thoughts emerging in Berlin or ideational movements or some sort of philosophy and being shifted to Beirut or Tunis. Maybe Tunis is a bit of a difficulty at the moment, but 
but certainly Beirut, uh, because true Beirut is a is a powder keg, and but it doesn't, it still has a lot of gaps uh, of freedom and mobility that we don't see in most Arab cities of of the of North Africa and, and, and the Middle East. So the question is, if successful uh, intellectual ventures were to happen in Berlin, uh, and, and, and if we were to follow historical patterns of how they return back to the, the homeland or the region, and could they have some sort of force? I could, I could see this happening in Beirut. If you asked me many years ago, I would have said Cairo straight away. But, you know, it's not really in a, in a position that it can. And I think if, if it was Cairo, it would be able to have much more of a heavyweight uh, in the in the in, in the output and production and, and movement of ideas, but this this is not uh, happening anytime soon. Having said that, historically, if we look at where ideas come from, if we use uh, Pan Arabism for all all its faults, uh, these, these, this is a very uh, Levantine Syrian Lebanese phenomenon that um, you know that was birthed and, and and crafted in Beirut and Damascus, and only came to Egypt. Uh, all the way, like with a, in a very heavy political sense, in the 1950s, after Gamal Abdel Nasser uh, took over, but it was always brewing in that part of the world, in in the Levant, compared to uh, other parts of the region. Uh, it only it took its force because of the of the size of of, of Egypt and its cultural production that it could actually um, give it an impetus. But its its of its its authority and legitimacy comes from uh, Shem. Mm. Yeah, I. this makes me think there was an article that came out, I remember around, I was at the UB, so that would have been 2012, 2013, sort of by a, I don't remember who it was, but by a Khadiji, like by a Gulf, um, uh, I think Saudi uh, person, like a, a journalist, a writer, and actually saying that the new capitals of culture is basically becoming Dubai and, and Riyadh and so on. And the argument that was being made is is very straightforward. You know, things are bad elsewhere, post-2011, especially around 2013 or so. Uh, the money is in the Gulf, we know this. A lot of people go there for, uh, for well, for job opportunities and so on. And, and that was kind of the end of the argument. Then obviously the critique of that, which you know, I had back then and I would still have today, is that... Yes, there is a there is a certain stability that can come, uh, and I'm not uh, downplaying that from a from financial security, from a decent salary, from that sort of thing. But crucially, as you yourself mentioned, there are all of these conditions and limitations that that come from from living in, in the Gulf. Uh, for one, you just simply cannot uh, say much that's, that's inherently political un unless it is already aligned with what the, what the government is saying, for example, what the governments are saying. Uh, and even then there are limitations you, you can't go too far on that. And so for me, that, that's kind of the, the crucial bit. I obviously I'm from Lebanon, so I would sound biased, but there, there was, there is, and there was, and there still is to a certain extent, a possibility of, of talking about like, for example, the whole insulting the president, which is illegal in Lebanon, legal, like it's against the law, uh, people do it all the time anyway. And some people do get um, some heat, some people do get arrested. Uh, 
mm. uh, for the most part they then get released like it's it's a it's a way of pressuring them essentially but it's a very common to to at least be open about about these things now there are some limitations you know when it comes to Hezbollah there's more like certain things that you cannot really do or say and so on and so there are some some limitations and not just them but you know just them specific them especially I would say but yeah that being said there was this uh, there's always this funny thing that uh, I I I heard a different uh, iteration of that of that saying many times like. I forgot what it was, but like uh, Egypt writes, Lebanon publishes, and Baghdad reads, or something, or Beirut, you know, yeah. Cairo writes, something like that. And yeah. I've heard, I've heard different iterations of this, which was actually funny. Which was one of them was uh, Sudan, uh, like uh, Khartoum writes, uh, Beirut publishes, and Baghdad reads. Which like I feel like basically everyone wants to be the one that writes, and so that's it's just kind of just kind of funny. But sort of on on the uh, kind of a finer thing before we get into the book section, if that's okay. Yeah. One thing that um, I have a particular interest in, which is languages and the politics of languages, that, that was my master's. My master's was on the politics of, of Yiddish and Hebrew specifically. And the episode before this one, actually, uh, yeah, literally the episode before this one, I touched a bit upon that. Um, we are having this conversation in English. Um, uh, of course, we can have it in Arabic. Uh, but it is common to have these conversations in English. I would imagine that in different contexts, in different settings, we might hear uh, kind of similar conversations in German or in French, especially maybe in Turkish as well these days. And I would I would suspect to a lesser extent, but also to some extent in Spanish and 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 other languages. Um, what what do you think is sort of? Uh, and I say this because I, I've asked this question a number of times. I've had, for example, Salim Haddad on, who is a Lebanese, um, well, Lebanese, Palestinian, etc., Iraqi as well, uh, author, who wrote this beautiful novel called Guapa, and he wrote it in English. And I remember I asked him that question because he went on BBC Arabic, and so, of course, they spoke in Arabic, and she asked him, like, the host asked him, like, um, why did you write it in Arabic? Don't you feel that something was lost? And his response, his response was, yes, of course, something is lost, but... Well, he's simply more comfortable in English, mm. and I would say that as far as the written word is, con is concerned, when I speak, it's I'm 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 okay with both. But when it comes to writing, because my upper education has been my higher education, I should say, has mm. been in in English, like AUB, then University of London, and now uh, well Edinburgh, and then and now Zurich is also in English. I'm doing it. Uh, it's how I'm able to form my ideas. I'm able to express myself in a certain way. Um, better, uh, better than French actually. And French is one of my two native languages because this been this is my higher high, the language of my higher high education. So, what are your sort of thoughts on this in terms of can one be, for example, let me put it that way, can one be an Arab exile? Can we build an Arab exile body uh, without Arabic, or does it only have to be uh, through Arabic? You know, I'm also going to be biased, and I'll have to say this is a very important question, and I don't think yeah. a day ever passes without me thinking about it. I'm also comfortable in English, uh, but also it's because of my uh, third culture kid upbringing, uh, particularly in Australia. I love the Arabic language and I, and I wish I would use it, uh, you know, in, in, in such situations, which I do, by the way. But I think we we, we, we take use or we, 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 we latch onto the English language for a few reasons and we cannot delude ourselves as well. First of all, it is more safer to speak uh, in English than Arabic. Most people who have disappeared have often used Arabic as a form of communication. Uh, maybe this is conscious or unconscious, but it's a reality. 
how many times when we've written uh, articles and when uh, an Arabic publisher asked us to translate it to Arabic and I've had to refuse. I've, uh, I've done the same as well, yeah. Although the, the audience that would benefit the most would be an Arabic-speaking audience, but the price is too high to pay. The other factor is that it is, at this point in history, a universal language that we have to work with because the, the delivery and the output would be limited with any other languages, even if it was French. The other factor also, I would say, is that it's like a, a black Tunisian on Twitter, she, what she said was quite powerful. When she said that when someone criticized her for um, using English to discuss racism and to discuss racism in Tunisia and, uh, you know, and everything related to that, she says that English has just become more developed in this area of anti-racist discourse because of the civil rights movement and, and all these matters and um, you know, critical theory and anti-colonialism. There's just much more developed in that area uh, where um, you can use it where Arabic hasn't had that luxury because often, uh, not, not only has it not had the luxury to develop an anti-racist discourse, there's just a default position that you, know, you find in the Arabic speaking world where they'll say, there's no racism. So that's just like, or they'll mention Belal or something, you know, like this. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's just this strange form of inability to engage with something so serious. Uh, but it's often, um, you know, denied and said, like, this happens in the West, you know. And so we're not able to even get to stage one of, of this discussion. Although things are improving over the years, I have to say. But still, there's a long way to go in this region. Uh, the other uh, point I'll mention, I think it was by the the, the, um, the Libyan British author Hashan Mato, where he says he says that uh, English is is how I communicate. It's it's you know it's like he he owns it. It's his language, and he can deliver deliver his points powerfully. So I think the ideology of languages can be. Uh, problematic and it can be manipulative as well, especially when uh, you know it's used to silence uh, those. Like for me, the biggest criticisms against my use of English on Twitter comes from uh, regime bots in the region. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily come from someone else who is in a position of Arabic authority. Uh, and and finally, I'm I'm actually facing this. Uh, you know, dilemma because I'm moving to Morocco, you know, in a few months, and you know, I've been advised to learn French. But and I find this really crazy. I would never tell someone coming to Egypt to learn English. <laughs> <laughs> but but for some reason, French has really entered the Darija lexicon in such a way that it, it's difficult to separate it from there. Uh, and, and and Moroccans are divided about this. Um, and um, and it's something I'm going to have to discover when I move there. Yeah, I I always tell this to to people like when, when this is asked that uh, the vast majority of people in Lebanon, uh, which again is sort of a best case scenario as of now in terms of repression, when they were arrested, they were arrested because usually out of two, re two reasons. One, they said something direct. So they mentioned 
a president by name or like you know that sort of even Lebanon has this um, uh, I don't know if it's a law but it's definitely a practice where you're not allowed to actually insult other heads of states as well mm-hmm. um, now obviously the way it's applied is very different like you know if you if you insult the Israeli prime minister the Lebanese don't care but if you insult the the Saudi king which happened a number of times that's that's when you can get in trouble and then the the second thing is that it would be done in Arabic it would be like you know a video on Instagram of someone directly insulting the president it would be a tweet directly mentioning uh, Nasrallah or the president you know whatever it would be something always on those lines where if you're just writing something you have the the uh, in English especially you do have a sort of distance and I think we we do underestimate uh, and I appreciate that you mentioned this because I've, I've myself, I've definitely wrestled with that question. I would say now I'm a bit more at ease with it than I was a few years ago because I was in Beirut and I was writing in English. Uh, I did sometimes write in Arabic but for the, and French as well, but for the most part I wrote in English uh, for various reasons. It's kind of the jobs I was getting required me to write in English or, you know, that, that sort of thing. But it also became those two things that you mentioned. One, it was safer either whether this is rational or not, I, I don't think it matters. It was most, mo- like, you, you kind of learn this by doing it. You, you see what works and what doesn't work. You see that something gets a violent reaction and something doesn't in the same way. Um, as you said, even in terms of online activity, even when it comes to Twitter, um, more, for the most part, I don't get the same kind of bots and attacks when I write in English as I do when I, I used to tweet in Arabic, which I haven't done in a while now. So it's something that I'm still wrestling with. Mm-hmm. And... I wish there was an ideal situation where everything I say can have an Arabic translation without the repercussions, or if I can just do so in Arabic as well, I wouldn't have those other limitations of, well, my audience is uh, a fraction of it because I don't have the institutional resources or support or whatnot, or those other stuff that we've mentioned. So it's something that I would just say kind of like as a concluding uh, thing that it is something that is very much of an open question and I, I appreciate people who treat it as an open question rather than this is how things should be and if you don't speak only in Arabic all the time you're no longer a good Arab or, or whatever. I feel like that's very reductive way of of thinking of things as if the, the Arabs during the Ottoman Empire would communicate in Turkish with the other people as if they were no longer Arab for example. There's, there's a very reductive way of, of looking at this unfortunately and it, it is it's still there so we'll 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 leave it at that on that sense um unless you have anything else you wanted to add before i sort of uh we get into the book section we'll just get into the book section directly Uh, up to you yeah no i was just gonna say the points you raised are brilliant and i think uh the the politics of language was be something that will be with us every day Uh, and i think it's not it's not like out of spite that we speak english or we speak you know it's just the situation has, in a way, forced us into into these um, spaces and into these positions uh, to speak that. Uh, and it's not just us. I mean, even Germans have to realize eventually that they have to speak English when they want to engage with the world. Uh, you know, that's, um, that it becomes actually uh, a drawback to stick to only German. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not just you know an Arab world phenomenon, for example. Uh, yeah. In fact, yeah. No, no, sorry. Continue. And in Morocco. There was an article I think that came out in New York Times where or was it the Atlantic where they had you know people are learning English as a, a form of resistance against the French because they found the French language is you know imperialistic etc and so English is like an escape out of that. It, it's strange that they have to go for a European language, but I, I get the idea you know the, how they're trying to make that shift uh, and so forth. But also career-wise and social mobility, it makes sense to um, latch onto the English language. 
Um, but I, I think it's an important topic, but I, I feel that there's there's a time for speaking Arabic. Like for me, it's when I give public lectures in Egypt, I will I will use Arabic for some lectures and English for other lectures. And there's an advantage of using Arabic here is that I'm much more careful. Uh, there's more, um, you know, it's difficult to sit, sort of censor me or I'm, I'm more hyper aware. And if someone had any doubts, uh, they can ask me a question and I can answer it in front of a live audience. Uh, when you write in Arabic, you know, it's and it's published, that's it. You know, it could be open to any interpretation. Whereas when you have a human face to a human face, it's more uh, manageable. It's more um, uh, relatively a bit more safer uh, compared to the writing aspect. Uh, and uh, once again, this is we, we have to deal with the mess that colonialism has left us. Uh, and, uh, and 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 the whole baggage that comes with it, you know, the uh, in this region with identity and religions and, and 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 regions and country and citizenship and flags and football teams and you know mobility and cosmopolitanism, like there is a lot to consume, and we pick our language depending on the time of day in the in the audience. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded of a. Um... I forgot who it was, but I, I believe it, um, an African-American writer, she said something along the lines of like, English is the language of our oppressors, but I needed to communicate with you. It's something very, very, something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing. And uh, this is something not a lot of people know, but even in Lebanon, because of obviously the French uh, legacy, um, I have seen this, like when I went to AUB, which again is the American University of Beirut, for those who don't know, there was this, a sense that because I was a Frenchy, quote unquote, as, as they used to call it, and I cannot hold my R's, which is a, you know, a stereotypically French thing, I, I was perceived as somehow more middle class or more even upper class than some other people who were speaking in English. And so there was this very kind of funny but also odd uh, situation where English became the language of the people in, within, the, within the very bubble uh, context that is the American University of Beirut and so there is there is just that I would see like student protests against tuition hikes against uh, very local issues like in Beirut uh, safe Beirut heritage or others ending the kafala system and of course you would have a lot of Arabic but it wouldn't be uncommon to also see signs in English or even chants well chants not as much there is this very interesting thing of like well the, the writing can be in English but when we speak, it's in Arabic. And there's, there's this very interesting dynamic that happens, which I would hopefully like to explore more one day. But in any case, um, that, that being said, uh, what are, uh, sort of to kind of wrap up, what are sort of three books that you would recommend to our listeners and, and why those three? Okay, so uh, starting off, I would recommend City of Exiles, Berlin from the Outside In by the Australian author Stuart Braun. So actually, when I saw his book in a cafe, it was displayed in a cafe that sort of gave me, made me, enabled me to link it to the idea of the Arab exiles. So he gives more of a historical brushstroke of history of Berlin, of uh, the exiles that have included you know, everyone from the, the Russians to Spaniards, uh, different types of exiles and why they make it exiles, why Berlin is receptive to uh, exiles uh, relative compared to other cities. So he, he explored it nicely and he gave it, and it's a, a very easy read, I would say, as well. And um, I'm actually grateful for that book. It, it's actually very, um, I think, a very, it, it, it stands the test of time with, with um, what is happening in Berlin and how we can treat Berlin as a, 
social and political laboratory to create new beginnings and new uh, civic initiatives. Uh, the next one I would say is uh, the representations of the intellectual by uh, by Edward Said. Uh, this one's a very nice one, and I've always really wanted to know what is the role of intellectuals in. Uh, well, he is obviously the twentieth century, but where we fit in as in, in, in these patterns of uh, the different types of intellectuals and their responsibility to the public welfare. So it's it's a it's a very very uh, excellent book that he gave in um, based on a series of lectures. That he gave in 1993, and uh, finally the the one uh, the the third book I would say is uh, Exile, Statelessness, and Migration: Playing Chess with History from Hannah Arendt to Isaiah Berlin. So this one is uh, written by Sela Bahabib. Not sure if you've uh, come across it, but it really it fascinates me the fact that their Jewish identity informed all their experiences of being outsiders, as well as uh, thinkers that ended up producing. You know, brilliant and moving intellectual mo movements of modernity. And I think there is some overlap with emerging Arab intellectual currents. And the question one could ask is, how can we learn from them? Uh, it's actually quite funny because <laughs> uh, there, was a, there was a Jewish intellectual in, in Berlin who approached me two years ago after reading the essay and told me how, I, uh, how the, the essay basically inspired uh, his work with Jewish leftist activism in Berlin. And I told him, uh, you don't need to thank me. I stole most of my ideas from Jews anyway. <laughs> I just repackaged it and gave it back to you. <laughs> uh, this is perfect because, as I said, the episode just before this one, uh, Cindy Milstein, we spoke about uh, Jewish radicalism and Jewish diasporism, especially. And w my intention from that was to actually have a, and it's going to be in the title of that episode, like in an Arab or a Jewish Arab con diaspora conversation, essentially. So that was a very, very wholesome conversation where we were, she was uh, referencing the, obviously the very, very long history of exile and displacement and all, and, uh, and, and, you know, most of the time forced uh, that uh, many Jews have faced throughout history and how this actually informs her need for community, her need for for be always believing that there is an alternative, always the need to build something different and so on. So it's very nice that this is sort of what how we wrap it out on because it's accidentally, I, di I didn't actually plan the timeline uh, on purpose, uh, complements in some sense uh, that, that conversation. Um, so, uh, well, on that note, uh, Amro, thanks a lot for your time. I really, really enjoyed this, this conversation. Thank you, Joy. I really enjoyed it. I loved it. It actually made me think a lot of, uh, of the topics that were raised uh, that I'll be taking into consideration in the next couple of days and weeks. So I think Amazing. I benefited from it as well. Mm -hmm.